When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And now for something completely different. Hello and welcome in to another episode of the Get Cocky Podcast, part of the Gamecock Central Podcast Network, a Tuesday edition this week. And I have to say, if I had known that what was going to happen today with the news about Ryan Helensky having surgery to repair a meniscus and maybe an ACL was going to come out this morning that I really would have pushed to get this thing done on Monday. Wilhelms and I had a little bit of a scheduling hang up, so we figured we could just push until today. There were so many things to talk about already, and now we just have one more thing that we're going to get to, so this might be an extra long podcast. Uh, we will certainly see. Before we get to Will with some thoughts on the Clemson game, with some thoughts as Carolina closes out its 2019 football season, I want to remind you all to rate, review, subscribe to this podcast, and share it with your friends if you like what we do and you want us to keep doing it throughout the offseason into next football season. It's a great way to support the podcast and uh, shows us that you guys enjoy listening to it so please do that and for those of you that already have rated reviewed and subscribed to the podcast or shared it with anybody that you know that is interested in Gamecock football we really appreciate it so I'll go through this chronologically that's how I did it yesterday on my radio show and frankly the only way that I know how to do it to make any sense out of this we'll start with this weekend South Carolina lost 38 to 3 to Clemson a game that didn't even get talked about that much because of everything that happened Sunday afternoon, Monday morning, and then Tuesday morning. And frankly, there's not a whole lot to say about the game, so I won't spend much time on this. All I will say is that the game went about like I expected and ended even better for South Carolina than I would have expected. 38-3 to is more than a cover. The line settled at like 27 or 28, which I said that was a stupid line. I said the line should have opened at 32, probably could have been 35. And I'm not just saying that to toot my own horn because it finished at exactly 35 and that would have been a push. I'm just saying that's about what I thought the line should be. So game basically went like I expected. Carolina had one surprisingly long drive. The rest of the offense was completely inept for the entirety of the rest of the game, which is exactly what I expected. And the defense, by and large, held up. I mean, Clemson was playing their backups and third string guys sort of by the end of the game so it's really hard to say one way or the other but this is the first time in seven weeks or seven games I should say that Clemson didn't eclipse the 40 yard mark and there were times when they had to work for it now Clemson is just better just straight up better basically across every position group and they did a good job of scheming up some of those game plans to get their receivers for example in advantageous positions Carolina did what they could with the personnel that they have with the limitations they have especially in the back end of their secondary but I'll be very curious once we talk to Will in just a minute to hear what some of the numbers are for other members of the secondary Jamie Robinson I think had another pretty good game he eclipsed 60 tackles I think finished the season with 62 which is the most ever by a South Carolina freshman capping off what's been a really really strong freshman campaign for him jc horn i think had a pretty good game at least early on i remember seeing will tweeting about some of the trends in terms of who he was marking and which clemson receivers were getting open and getting catches and things like that not exactly sure how israel will grade out but we can talk to will about that in a second i just say that to say carolina did about what they could about as well as they could have defensively against clemson and could clemson have scored 52 100 i have my final score prediction and not that I had one, but if I had one, it would have been about like 48 to 3, 45 to 3, 52 to 6, something like that. So, like I said, didn't go very differently at all than I was expecting. 
what happened after that was also not surprising, but I guess the specifics of it were not exactly what I was expecting. My predictions for what was going to happen this offseason are that Brian McClendon would not come back as the offensive coordinator, or at least not the sole offensive coordinator. I know Carolina's paying him a lot and still respect what it is that he brings to the table, even if it's not like game plan specific or like game game day play calling or specific game plans, anything like that. I think there is still a sense that he is respected and that the coaching staff in the university values what it is that he brings and clearly what I think other people around the country value because they're at least intrigued enough to kind of poke around and also to justify his salary and to keep him here in, in Columbia. It wouldn't have totally shocked me if he maintained a co-offensive coordinator title while turning over the play-calling responsibilities to whatever other assistant coach Carolina was going to bring in. Uh, but instead, Brian McClendon has been just straight-up demoted from offensive coordinator. I guess he has the option to remain on the staff in capacity of the wide receivers coach, which he was before he got promoted. And uh, there seems to be some uncertainty as to whether or not he will remain in that position or if he will decide once he gets a, probably another offer to be an offensive coordinator somewhere else that he will take that. Uh, elsewhere, Dan Werner as a quarterback's coach, is out for South Carolina. I, I, I was initially surprised by that, but it was had more to do with the fact that there was a lot of excitement about bringing Dan Werner into the program than what actually transpired this year. Because, I mean, if, if you look, I mean, since Dan Werner's been here, it's been pretty underwhelming. And you can say this year, well, you lose your starting quarterback to Liz Frank surgery and Jake Bentley and clearly Ryan Helinski. He was banged up for most of the season, which we're going to talk about in just a second. And the carry on joiner was never healthy. So you can't overly hold it against Dan Werner. But it also makes sense when you think about the fact that maybe whichever guy South Carolina or whichever guys South Carolina has their eyes on is also someone that's going to come in and coach the quarterbacks. You have to, you know, free that up for whoever that next person is going to be. And we can talk about that in, in a minute as well. The other guy that is out for South Carolina is strength and conditioning coach Jeff Dillman, who has been with Will Muschamp for eight years, four years at Florida, four years at South Carolina. Again, not a huge surprise. I don't know if Jeff Dillman is to blame for some of the injury problems that South Carolina has had over the years. Some of it is bad luck. Some of it could also be, you know, Will Muschamp's coaching philosophies and things that, that Jeff Dillman doesn't directly control. And so why I don't, necessarily think that that's going to be the solution and all of a sudden Carolina is going to have no injuries next year or anything like that it just is kind of what happens after two years ago Carolina was decimated on defense this past year Carolina was decimated on offense the strength and conditioning coach is the guy whose head is going to roll because Ray Tanner people at the university the board fans around Columbia even though they're not doing it necessarily to appease the fans somebody these people need somebody's head on a platter, and in this case, it's injuries. It's Jeff Demon. That makes sense. Not a lot of huge surprises there, but then you start to ask the questions about, okay, well, who is South Carolina going to go get? And for those of you that have been reading Gamecock Central this week, Wes and Chris have done an excellent job of providing updates in terms of what they're hearing from university officials as to who Carolina is pursuing, where their interests lie, what other coaches might be interested in South Carolina. And I can, I'll, I guess I'll just mention a couple of the names now, but more than that, I would encourage you to subscribe to Gamecock Central so you can read all of that. These are insider reports courtesy of Chris and Wes. And if you're not a subscriber to Gamecock Central, it's a great time to be one because obviously you have all this going on, the offensive coordinator search, which is, I mean, the biggest thing with the actual football team that people are concerned about. And obviously, Big time to follow recruiting, National Signing Day, or the early signing period rather, starts in just a couple of weeks, and then you have National Signing Day not long after that in February. So if you want to be informed about where South Carolina's recruiting class is going to end up, I know there's a lot of anxiety with South Carolina finishing the season 4-8, and eight, but to be honest, I haven't heard of a lot of people 
decommitting or overly discouraged by that. But if you want to keep your finger on the pulse of all that's going on with recruiting, with the offensive coordinator search, subscribe to Gamecock Central. You can use the exclusive podcast code GCPOD to do that for a month for free just to try it out. If you don't want to make the commitment now, but it's a little bit tight around Christmas, I understand. You know, we just had Thanksgiving. You got to do Christmas shopping and things like that. We can get you into the new year for free. Being a subscriber to Gamecock Central, all you have to do is use the exclusive podcast code GCPOD. And uh, more importantly, Chris and Wes have just done a better and more thorough job of going through all of the different candidates for the offensive coordinator position than I have and are frankly much more connected than I am. So I would definitely trust their opinions over mine. But some of the names that have come up, obviously Chad Morris, who's out out at Arkansas. People will remember him being a very successful offensive coordinator for Clemson. That's a, a curious situation for me because I... I wonder where his interests lie. He is more concerned with remaining within Power 5 football, within SEC football specifically maybe, in which case it would obviously have to be as a coordinator. You're not going to go from getting fired at Arkansas for being terrible to taking another major head coaching job. But I wonder if if he would be tempted by maybe a lower-level kind of head coaching job to try to work his way back up. I don't necessarily think that's the case. It's just sort of something that I consider when I'm thinking about these former head coaches that are then having to make the decision of, you know, whether they want to kind of restart their head coaching career or whether they want to go, you know, be an assistant somewhere else and then maybe hope that a head coaching position opens up somewhere down the road. I think that would be an interesting one. Not one that I think is terribly exciting. I know that would move the needle for people because they've heard of him and because he had some good offenses at Clemson. But I was talking to my roommate Joe about this and he kind of pointed out Pretty much every time Carolina played Clemson during that span, Carolina was able to, to pretty well shut them down. Clemson was able to put up a lot of points because they were more talented than a lot of the mediocre teams they were playing in the SEC. But uh, not to say that it was a gimmicky offense necessarily, but it's something that I think you can maybe game plan for a little more easily. And good talent, of course, takes care of all of it. And it's all sort of a recruiting game and having somebody that knows this part of the country, obviously from being at Clemson and knows the SEC from being at Arkansas and has head coaching experience. I think there are some benefits to bringing him in. That would not be the one that necessarily moves the needle as much for me. Another name that I saw pop up that I thought was interesting is uh, Rhett Lashley, who right now is the offensive coordinator at SMU, who's putting up a ton of points. And this is funny because it's kind of the opposite. And so I think ultimately whether or not you're happy with an offensive coordinator hire here for South Carolina in the next couple of weeks It's just going to be a philosophical argument. Some people value the pedigree of just a big name, someone that people have heard of, someone that you feel like can really help you on the recruiting trail, and other people are like, I'm not as interested in that. Let's get like a young and -and up-and-coming guy, somebody that maybe not everyone's heard of, but is a little more creative, a little more innovative, and there's no right or wrong answer. And I mean, it's kind of unfortunate that we don't have a little bit more to go on because we've seen Will Muschamp take chances on guys and it hadn't worked out, and we've seen Will Muschamp make hires of guys that were very well regarded throughout all of the college football and, you know, didn't pan out. So maybe that just speaks to a larger issue about Will Muschamp's philosophy of offense or just his philosophy on how to run football teams and how that can at times trickle down to and adversely affect different facets of the the game that he's not even necessarily directly impacting, but um, that's a conversation for another time. But Rhett, Rhett Lashley is a guy that was named to the last 15 of the Broyles finalists this year. Um, I'm recording this on a Tuesday, actually. Sorry, this is a day late. He was not named to one of the five finalists, but he was a Broyles finalist in 2013, so has twice made the shortlist, once been a finalist. That's something that I like to look at. That's a, the award that's given annually to the nation's best assistant coach. Those are the kinds of guys, and you know, for him to be on that list in 2013, for him to make sort of the second cut but not the final cut here in 2019 I think indicates that he continues to innovate continues to I guess do things well do things differently to change things up and is willing to adapt to the 
different offensive and defensive landscapes of college football. In 2013, he was calling plays for Gus Malzahn at Auburn, which is when he was named uh, the finalist for the Broyles. And then this year, obviously doing it at SMU, different sort of level of competition. But the game has changed so much from the beginning of this decade to the latter part of this decade. I am encouraged by the idea of somebody that is willing to evolve with the game and can get it done you know, playing at a school like Auburn where you have a lot of resources, where you have a lot of talent and where you're playing really good defenses. And also somewhere like SMU where you're you're playing mid-majors, so you're playing smaller schools where it's, I mean, I, the, the talent levels are probably, I mean, it's like relatively equal. But, but it seems like uh, maybe, I guess, there's a little more freedom to experiment, to be a little more schematically diverse and progressive in lower levels of football. You just can't take as many chances as you can when you're at a, a power five school. And so again, I, just, I, I like the variability that bringing in someone like Lashley would provide. I've heard Matt Canada's name float out, floated out there. According to Wes and Chris, that one doesn't seem overly likely. Uh, Joe Brady. Uh, part of the other problem with some of these guys like Joe Brady is a huge name right now. And you know, LSU is going to give him a huge raise for those of you that aren't aware. He is the passing game coordinator and quarterbacks coach for South Carolina. Somebody's going to throw a lot of money at him to try to do to their school what he has done for LSU and Joe Burrow this year. The other problem is South Carolina is not going to be competing for these guys in a vacuum. Texas has had their offensive coordinator step down, basically similar to what Carolina did, where they didn't fire him, but he has been reassigned or demoted or however you want to call it. There are going to be other big jobs that can offer probably more money and more appealing situations than South Carolina is right now. So this isn't just a matter of identifying the right guy for the situation, but identifying the right guy that is interested in South Carolina and that frankly doesn't get any better offers or, you know, just make as much of a godfather offer as South Carolina can. So uh, those are just a couple of the names that I thought were interesting that jumped off the board to me. Uh, Kalen DeBoer at Indiana is somebody apparently whose, whose name has gained a little bit of momentum here in the last 24 hours or so. I don't know a whole lot about him, but like I said, for those of you that are curious about the specifics of a lot of these guys and some more names that I haven't mentioned today, check out Wes and Chris's Insider Report every day on Gamecock Central, or at least I don't know if it's actually happening every day. Then It's normally a not that regular feature, but they have been updating this one regularly because this is such an important search for South Carolina. So Gamecock Central, GC Pod, if you're not a subscriber and you want to be for a month for free. The last big piece of news this week, it broke just this morning by Mike Gillespie of ABC Columbia when it was announced that Ryan Holinsky was going to be having surgery here probably in the next week, although the university released a statement this afternoon saying there was no specific timeline set for when the surgery was going to take place, but that would be to repair a torn meniscus, and the university said there was nothing to do with a torn ACL. It seems like we're arguing semantics here, and I don't want to get too much into I guess, sort of like the politics and the semantics of it, but it seems like there may be something else in his knee that he's getting just cleaned up, if not surgically repaired. There was also some conversation about elbow surgery, but the short of it is Ryan Helensky, whom we watched this year and thought looked like he was playing injured, was in fact playing injured, so nobody should be surprised. Nobody should be outraged. It's kind of exactly what we thought was happening, and his timetable for recovery is pretty quick. I mean, I think a liberal estimate would say six to eight weeks, so which means he would certainly be back in time for spring practice, which is great to get another one of those under his belt. You get another summer, you get another fall camp. There's plenty of time for him to get back to full strength. And I think the the interesting question is now how much of the Ryan that we all watched at the beginning of the year in that Alabama game, in the first half of the Georgia game, is the Ryan that we can expect to see week in and week out when he's healthy. Or I guess put another way, how much of his poor performances down the stretch, whether it's against Clemson, against Texas A&M, against Appalachian State, all these games, how much of that had to do with the injury? And my inclination would be a lot, 
but maybe not all. I think there are some elements of it that you can probably also just chalk up to him being a freshman, having to learn some of those things. Now, there are a lot of mature elements of his game that I really appreciate and encourage me about his talent and his future here at South Carolina, his willingness to stand in the pocket and take hits. That may have as much to do with his lack of mobility um, as anything. He's got no better option other than to stand in the pocket and just kind of deliver the football and take whatever hits come. Uh, His willingness to go through the progressions, to not overly focus on one receiver, which I think is really easy for young quarterbacks to do. Those things I I think are are generally really encouraging, but I I will stop short of saying I think he's going to have 350 yards against every Alabama-like team that Carolina plays next year, or you know, even if you just take the first half of that Georgia game where he was whatever it was, 10 of 14 and like 130 yards and a really nice touchdown pass to Brian Edwards. I don't remember the exact stat line, but I don't know if that it's fair to expect that once he has this knee surgery. But I think something closer to that, and I guess less variance, more, more of the positive moments, fewer of the negative moments, and just in general, more kind of in a comfortable range. Because while I, I think that what Ryan showed last year was even more consistency than, than Carolina fans had seen from Jake Bentley in the last couple of years. Cause I mean, that was about as extreme as you can get in terms of the high highs and the low lows. I still think there was more variance than I have been willing to admit just because he hasn't turned the ball over a whole heck of a lot, which is really nice. The ball security, I think is something that you look at and say, that's a clear sign of someone that is inconsistent when they throw a lot of touchdown passes, throw a lot of interceptions, especially when some of those interceptions are ugly because he didn't throw the throw the interceptions because he didn't put the ball in jeopardy a lot I think it was easy for me sort of in the moment to say well at least he's taking care of the ball it's not that inconsistent but you go game to game there are some games when he was just incredibly accurate incredibly precise incredibly decisive in other games where he didn't now again maybe you can chalk that up to youth and say that by the time he goes through another spring and another summer of weightlifting and you know spending time with the playbook and his receivers and then a whole other fall camp and then you get into the other season then some of those things will work themselves out but I think in general I would say that I'm still cautiously optimistic with some reservations because I feel like I had similar cautious optimism about Jake Bentley after a strong freshman year for him as well and then by sort of halfway through his sophomore year I was like eh, you know, maybe this isn't totally working out but given the nature of the surgery, that it won't be a long recovery time. I, I feel good about Ryan's chances to come come in and, and, and be back and retain that starting position, which is good because to carry on Joyner, you know, no idea, wasn't healthy this year. I have no reason to believe he's the guy to lead the South Carolina offense to a turnaround, like eight and four kind of season. And you certainly can't rely on Luke Doty, who's going to be coming in, learning all this as a true freshman. So it is important that Helensky is healthy. It seems like he's going to be. So this is ultimately good news. There, there have been a lot of lot of angry people i know there's always angry people on twitter there's been a lot of angry people on twitter talking about the nature of the reporting and how could the coaching staff do this and this that and the other the fact of the matter is he didn't injure himself more by playing on it he's having surgery and it's kind of the best case scenario in terms of what the timeline is so this is all good news for carolina fans if this is all just a way to release some of the frustration of the season you're taking it out on the coaching staff or on mike or on myself or anybody else that's talking about it and has a different opinion than you that's totally fine that's what we do Just know that this is ultimately a good situation for South Carolina football. Not as good as if he didn't have to have surgery, but it could certainly be a lot worse. It could be a fully torn ACL, or he could have chosen to go through with what he may have been considering in Tommy John surgery to repair the elbow, which is, again, we're going to save that for another time because that's a whole other can of worms and maybe something to actually legitimately be concerned about. That's kind of a, a weird subplot story that hasn't gotten a lot of play because everyone's more focused on the surgeries that are actually actually happening but if we are just talking about those surgeries that are actually happening and the things that could have 
prevented Ryan from playing better down the stretch this season. I remember talking to Eric, in fact, after maybe the Tennessee game, and he told me uh, that he that he being Ryan looked like he was protecting his leg on some of his down the field throws, you know, just the way that he wasn't totally stepping into him or didn't totally trust stepping up into the pocket as much as he normally would have or had in the past. And so that was, you know, leading to him not being as accurate, not getting, you know, the right touch on the ball and things like that. So if some of those things can be fixed just by having this surgery, it's, it's ultimately a good thing. And again, it's all about the timeline. I think that pretty much does it. Uh, a kind of truncated version of what has been the most eventful week of South Carolina sports, at least since I've started doing this job. So um hope I did an okay job with the Sparks News version of that. We're going to have a lot more with Will Helms. We're going to talk a little more specifically about the Clemson game, some of the pro football focus numbers, both from that Clemson game and then now that the season is over for South Carolina, we can look at some of the season-long grades to see maybe who overperformed expectations, underperformed expectations, who was like low-key MVP. I have a couple of people in mind uh, that I won't spoil now, but can't wait to ask Will about that and then some of the other things because, like I said, no shortage of things to talk about around the South Carolina football program right now. So without further ado, here's Will. All right, on the phone with me now, as he is every Monday, except we're doing this on a Tuesday because, boy, oh, boy, has it been an eventful start to the week in the world of South Carolina football is Will Helms. And as much as the other stories of Monday and Tuesday, the Ryan Helensky injury, the different coaching staff changes, the transfer of Jake Bentley have sort of overshadowed Carolina's final game of the season. That's actually where I want to start today because a lot of people would like to forget and probably have forgotten that Carolina did, in fact, play a football game on Saturday. It didn't go very well for them. They lost 38-3 to to Clemson. The game, I think, went largely how people expected. I was a little bit surprised that Clemson didn't break 40, but they were also playing their backups for at least a good part of the second half, so maybe not hugely surprising. And ultimately, Carolina's offense did what we thought they would do or wouldn't do. Clemson's offense at times looked pretty unstoppable. Did anything surprise you about Saturday's game? Absolutely nothing, which I think was the most surprising thing of the game was the fact that there was nothing surprising. Mm. Um, the offense started about how I thought it would. Uh, Clemson's defense has way too much speed for whatever offense South Carolina has thrown together right now. Um, and defensively, South Carolina played well. Um, Clemson did a very, very good job. Matt Connolly from the state had a great article about how um, the play design of the first three touchdowns um, was designed to take Israel Mukwamu and J.C. Horn out of the play because they knew that they could cover their future top draft picks at wide receiver. Um, so Dabo drew up some plays that um, allowed his 6'4", 6'5", receivers to get one-on-one with the likes of J.T. Ebay and R.J. Roderick in coverage, which obviously did not work out for South Carolina. But um, So I thought it was good play design there. Um, thought the defense played well overall based on the opponent and um, led to a 35-point loss, which just kind of shows the talent gap between the two teams. Yeah, it's weird that I don't want to say I feel good after that, and I don't think anybody you know associated with South Carolina in any way feels good about losing by 35 points to your rival, but just that it wasn't worse and that the margin basically was just the talent disparity between these two teams. Like It didn't feel like Carolina had a terrible game plan. They didn't seem to make a lot of mistakes. They just got severely beaten by a team that's significantly better than them, which if you want to take solace in something like that, it is there for you to do that. But uh, I feel like it's kind of exactly how the rest of the season's gone, where the defense 
you know, had its moments. They looked overmatched at times, which obviously hasn't always been the case. But, I mean, it's still a unit that flashed. Um, you mentioned some stats that uh, I would like – I'll be curious to hear an updated version of because you mentioned J.C. Horn starting the game, um, you know, very well in terms of locking down some of those Clemson receivers and Dabo and Tony Elliott and, and Jeff Scott and the guys up there having to really game plan to get their receivers into more favorable matchups. I, I think that's something that, that maybe didn't expect to see played out to that extent but was, you know, kind of a good sign. But, uh, you know, at the end of the day, you're still – losing by 35 points, which just comes back to the offense being completely ineffective, can't run the ball, can't pass the ball. It was like 179 yards of total offense or something ridiculous like that. Yeah, it wasn't good. And there's just there was no expectation that it was going to be better. I, I thought maybe we'd see a few wrinkles. At Jay Urich taking a couple of snaps and running, I mean, I guess not Wildcat because he is the third-string quarterback, was, I guess, something, something different. Obviously, no to carry on joiners, so that limited what South Carolina could do with any other with really any other quarterback in the game. And I feel like Yurik being there had as much to do with obviously Ryan Helensky being injured, which we would realize the full extent of just this morning, this Tuesday morning, um, had more to do with that than like trying to draw up anything creative. So were you disappointed that Carolina didn't try a few more wrinkles or, or were you just kind of throwing your hands up in the air because they're already so limited? I mean, I think that's kind of what it was. Um, they tried some stuff and it didn't work. Um, that's kind of been the theme of this season is it hasn't been for lack of trying. It hasn't been that, um, and this is where I disagree with a lot of people. It hasn't been that Brian McClendon is just a completely uncreative play caller. It's just that no matter what they do, it doesn't work. I thought the, um, I, probably the funniest play of the game was on a, I believe, third and one or fourth and one. Um, and uh, South Carolina brought its jumbo package in and then leaked out Kyle Markway against a 10-man rush um, and had him wide open, and had he not been caught from behind, would have been a very easy touchdown, which would have um, brought the score, I think, to 14-7 and would have put you know South Carolina at least respectably in the game. Um, but, you know, overall, it just – they tried some stuff. It didn't work. Clemson's defense is way too talented, especially without Brian Edwards. That's kind of been the X factor all season is if South Carolina needs to play, Brian Edwards goes up and makes a ridiculous catch, or they just kind of, you know, go to the air. He he bails out Ryan Holinsky or bails out the offense, really. Um, without Brian Edwards, that's just not happening. Um, was never going to happen against Clemson. doesn't matter what plays were called. Um, nothing was going to work in that game. No, it was just, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's hard to be too critical because it's just what are you supposed to do? Uh, although I will say, I guess maybe the one frustration to that game, and not frustration because it would have made a difference, but just frustration because I feel like this is yet another example. I'm almost losing count of Will Muschamp making very conservative decisions that I, I feel like even if they're not having that much of an impact on the game because, like I said, they wouldn't have changed the outcome of this game. I feel like just – probably demoralizes your team a little bit. And it was a little bit later, I think, in that same drive you were talking about where Carolina did convert on the great play action call to Markway. They have a third down. Maybe it was that next series, but a little bit later in the drive, they end up with, what, like a third and nine and then elect to just run it to basically set up a short field goal so that they could get on the board. And it was just so disappointing because it's like, look, you're a 27-point underdog at home. You can't really be kicking field goals. And like I said, it it wouldn't have made a difference because Carolina didn't look like scoring pretty much for – the entire rest of the game. So it doesn't make a difference, but just that sort of mentality. It's like say to your team that you, that you want to go for it, that you believe in them, that you believe the possibility of an upset is in, is in play here. And to do that, you know, you go for it or you first of all, try to actually get the first down on third down. And then you go for it on fourth down. Cause you're not kicking field goals and beating, you know, the number two or three or wherever you're looking 
team in the country. It's just that kind of stuff time and again. It's not just in the Clemson game. It's, you know, not spending timeouts at the end of the half to get the clock back and go score against North Carolina. It's, you know, it's a lot of those things that just kind of drive me crazy. So, again, it doesn't make a difference. And and also, I, I did concede maybe there is value beyond just a little mini confidence boost that your team would get from deciding to go for it. Maybe there is some value in just getting on the board to avoid getting shut out. So you know you're not going to get shut out. Maybe that takes some of the pressure off. So going from zero to three is maybe more significant than if Carolina had had three and elected to kick a field goal to go up to six as opposed to trying to get ten, um, something like that. But I, that was really the only frustration that I had during the game. And yeah, normally I would be pretty frustrated with that too. This is a super weird South Carolina offense. Um, it's worst in the country in third down passing success rate, uh, third and long passing success rate. And the best offense in the country at third down and long rushing success rate, um, which is probably the weirdest stat of the entire season, um, because you cannot find another team in college football that was better at running the ball on third and eight and longer than South Carolina. That is bizarre. All those weird draws that, for some reason, worked. And especially in the last couple weeks of the season, what game was it where they had – like three was it the Vanderbilt game where they just kept com- they converted like three or four third and longs on the exact same draw play and they just couldn't figure it out they, they had one against Florida they had one against Georgia they had two or three against Kentucky I think they had two or three against Vanderbilt just a weird thing that that would work um it's not like they were around the same draw play they ran a couple different variations of it um and it seemed to work they actually converted one um on third and nine at the beginning of the drive um against Clemson so Oh, yeah, that's right. I think they were, like, back inside their own 10 or own 20 or something like that, pretty well mm-hmm. backed up. Um, there's not a whole lot to say about the game. Like you said, it kind of went like you expected. Not a lot of huge surprises. Before we get into kind of, like, end of the season, looking back at some performances through the whole 12 games, not just the Clemson game, was there anything else that stuck out to you from this game, any performances that you thought were spectacularly great or spectacularly bad or just in any way notable? Um, Not Particularly, we'll talk about Jamie Robson in a little bit with um, some of our season and review stuff. Um, but he was the second highest graded um, South Carolina player on defense, really on either side of the ball, um, and the highest graded player of anybody with at least 16 snaps, um, which again just showed that, you know, he's playing competition, tough competition all week. Um, being in the slot, which is turning into one of the more difficult positions to play in college football, and he's just been phenomenal this season. Um, and was phenomenal uh, Saturday. He ended up with an 83 coverage grade, which is a career high for him. Um, shows how PFF's grade's a little bit different. Um, he gave up five receptions on five targets, um, but only 18 yards, uh, 3.6 yards of reception. Um, and overall, his season stats are just pretty ridiculous in that regard as well. Yeah, and I think, if I remember correctly, he was in coverage on that first touchdown, but I'm glad to hear that he had a good coverage grade because that's a play that you look at and you say, you know, it was good coverage, not necessarily elite, but also he's going up against a receiver that's at least five inches taller than him, and it was a perfect throw from Trevor Lawrence. It's one of those plays that you say, hey, you can't really do a whole lot about that. And if I'm remembering correctly, I don't think that was his man to begin with. I think that uh, was kind of a recovery of him to get in position, hmm. um, but I don't remember him um, being on, I believe it was T. Higgins um, to begin with. I, I think it was lined up against R.J. Roderick or J.T. Ebay. I can't remember. Hmm. Um, originally, it looked like some sort of recovery by uh, Jamie to even get in position. Um, really just a good play call, and anytime you throw an interception on your own side of the field after a big uh, fourth down and goal stop, 
uh, that's just brutal. Yeah, not great. Um, you're a numbers guy. You're good at this kind of stuff. I don't know how in the world you would do this, but I would love for you to one day develop a stat because as you were describing, you know, Jamie Robinson kind of being caught in the frame, looking like he was the guy that got beat, even though it wasn't his responsibility. I think back to Stephon Gilmore, especially his last year, where it just seems like he was unfortunately in the frame, like an inordinate amount of times, you know, when, when the other teams had big plays such that it looked like he was the guy getting beat, but it was just a case of him constantly like recovering and try to cover up other people's mistakes. And obviously he's like probably the best defensive back in the entire NFL right now. So he's really, really good, but he just got kind of caught in the wrong place at the wrong time, trying to cover up for his teammates. So I wonder if there's a way to, to quantify that stat. I, I feel like that's happened before this season to Jamie Robinson where he's trying to cover up for, like you said, JT or RJ or, or one of the other safeties and then ends up being the one that looks bad on the, on the screen. But I don't know how you'd calculate them. I have no idea, but I'd love to find something that would allow that. <laughs> um, all right, well, let's uh, let's start there. Um, the secondary for South Carolina, there was a lot of expectation coming into the season, specifically about those two corners. There was some uncertainty with the nickel position, given that you were bringing in four freshmen that were all basically going to be vying for that starting position. Um, a few question marks at the safety position. All in all, I feel like the group will is probably I feel like it's probably an average secondary with above average corners and below average safeties. Of everyone that played, I don't know what like a fair minimum number is, but if we say, I don't know, three hundred snaps or something like that, some some arbitrary cutoff, and you can say the cutoff. Uh, which South Carolina defensive back had the best twenty nineteen season according to Pro Football Focus? According to Pro Football Focus, it was Jamie Robinson. Wow. Um he actually had the second or third best defensive year among uh, third best defensive year among starters um, behind Javon Kinlaw, obviously in the elite range um, and Aaron Sterling yet again. um, This is the second straight year that he's had a really, really good grade from PFF, perhaps better than what we kind of see in the stat column. Um, And then Jamie Robbins is sitting there um, in third with a 73 overall defensive grade, which mm-hmm. on the year when it's the way it does yearly grades ends up grading out to well above average, um, even borderline top starter on an SEC defense. Um, so to come in as a freshman and be able to do that right off the bat has been impressive. And perhaps the most um, impressive thing, I meant to look this up beforehand, so I don't have the exact number. He is in the top three in the country in tackling grade for a defensive back. Um, I think I said this Saturday that he's one of the best open field tacklers I've ever seen. Um, and to be in that position that he was in quite a bit um, where he's having to uh, really be on an island and, you know, nobody within 10 yards of him and trying to make a tackle. He missed three tackles all season. And I, he obviously, at least from my perspective, had more opportunities to miss tackles than the average person and ends up with only three missed tackles. Yeah, that's phenomenal. I remember you giving me his statistics around the midway point of the season um, and I think the the number that jumped off the page then was basically the yards after catch that he just didn't allow because even when he allowed receptions, he was able to get those guys down. So, I mean, that's that's spectacular and obviously a very auspicious start to the season. Do you think the main takeaway from his being the best member of South Carolina secondary just promise for his career or a little bit of concern that it wasn't one of the more highly touted guys in Mukwamu and Horn? Um, definitely more on Jamie than on uh, Mukwamu and Horn, uh, those two combined to allow just 54% of their passes thrown uh, to be caught. J.C. Horn had two bad games. Israel Mukwamu had two bad games. And if you take those out, they're some of the best corners in the country. 
Um, and obviously it's a little unfair to say, okay, we'll take out those two games. Mm-hmm. But if you look at who um, those games come against, um, J.C. Horn had a poor game against Devontae Smith, which, you know, joined the club, J.C., everybody had a trouble covering Devontae Smith this season. One of them, um, J.T. Ebay, took a bad angle that really skews some of the stats, I think on like an 80-yard pass, that ends up being um, almost 20% of the yardage that, J.C. Horn gave up the entire season on that one play. That really isn't an issue if you don't have a safety, just miss a tackle and take J.C. out of the play, uh, out of the play at the same time. Israel Mukwamu teams were uh, 32 for 63 when throwing at him, so 51%. Um, four interceptions, uh, only three touchdowns. Those three together combined for, um, if I've got the stats here, they forced eight turnovers and allowed eight uh, touchdowns. So from your starting secondary to force eight turnovers, allow eight touchdowns, that's pretty pretty good. Um, at the same time, it shows that the safety play wasn't great, and at times the linebacker play in coverage was not great. Hmm. Um, but outside of that, the secondary really did play well all season. Um, Jamie's grade being better than Israel and JC is not because Israel and JC have bad grades. It's just his grade was better than theirs. And if you're someone that's looking for reason for optimism next year, that's it because all of those guys are coming back. Jamie's got at least two more years. Um, honestly, like JC is the only one of those three that I think you might risk losing next season. I don't think Israel Mukwamu just quite yet is someone that you would expect to leave after his junior year, um, but a solid season. And he has a couple more of those performances like he did against Georgia. Maybe he's in that conversation, but uh, that's a really, really good foundation to bring back in that group. At the second level of the defense, you're losing TJ Brunson, but uh, Ernest Jones, who was, I feel like the most solid guy, at least just based on the eye test in that unit all season long is obviously coming back. Jamar Brown, who lost a little bit of playing time as the year went on uh, as a true freshman. He'll someone, he's someone that will factor in. Certainly Sherrod Green still has another year of eligibility, which of the linebackers that um, again, whatever arbitrary number of snaps you're using to, to qualify these guys had the best season. So technically Sherrod Green had the best season for whatever reason. uh, PFF just doesn't like certain guys. Um, I've just come to that conclusion. (laughs) And Ernest Jones didn't grade out as well as I thought he um, should have. A lot of it is he grades out really poorly in pass rush. I don't remember him rushing the passer that much. We've got 60 plays all season. It says that he uh, rushed the passer and he loses points for that. Um, But he seemed to be the more consistent of the linebackers this year and really, I think, made that one of the most improved groups um, this season. Sherrod Green grades out a little bit ahead of him at a 71. Um, he had an up and down season towards the end of the year, uh, but had some really good performances that boost his season grade versus Ernest Jones had a couple really good grades, but other than that was just kind of solidly in the above average range. Hmm. And I guess consistency is not the worst thing in the world. If you know, you know, probably better to be consistent than have the spectacular highs and spectacular lows when you're talking about the the linebacking core and, and some of the improvement there. Um, in addition to, I think those guys just playing better has to do with improved play on the defensive line as well, um, which we can talk about in just a minute. But uh, anything else that stood back from the group of linebackers? I think the the thing that stood out to me is the fact that you have Ernest Jones and uh, T.J. Brunson with both over 700 snaps, and Sherrod Green is the only other one of those guys that has over um, 115 snaps. So Damani Staley saw action in a couple games. Um, kind of petered off there at the end. I don't know if he got hurt or if they just started going to a little bit more um, of that two-linebacker set. Um, there were times during the season that they, people made a big deal about going to the 4-3. 
it was determined by the other team. I mean, that was the stretch that they played um, Florida and Georgia and Vanderbilt um, and Kentucky kind of back-to-back-to-back, I think, four out of five games. So they were in the 4-3 because those teams run the ball a little bit more than the average team. Um, But overall, you see that they're in the nickel a lot, and as the season goes on, you see that Jamie Robinson just basically takes over all the snaps from the third linebacker position. Well, and with the kind of freshman year that he was having, I guess that makes sense just to get your 11 best guys on the field, or at least that's some people's philosophy. Uh, uh, In front of those guys, as I mentioned, I think some of the improved play from the linebackers is a direct result of, I think, significantly improved play from the defensive line. Some of that is guys just being healthy. Some of that is Javon Kinlaw turning himself into a legitimate first-round caliber defensive tackle. You mentioned Aaron Sterling having another great year. Uh, Did I hear you say, it was kind of a spoiler earlier, sorry about that, Javon Kinlaw did have the highest grade of anyone on the defensive line. Yeah, he had the highest grade. He was uh, graded out in the elite range, uh, really in the All-American range, um, just on that kind of borderline All-American range. But the interesting thing about that is his grade this year, I believe, is just a point or two higher than last year. um, Once it loads, I can get it up um, here to see. But last year, PFF really liked him, and it's more a testament to how good the rest of the defensive line was um, that we saw how good Javon Kinlaw was this year. Um, last year, he was just sitting there most of the time, um, taking up double teams, not really making a huge impact that we could see in the game, um, just kind of taking up some space, you know, doing some of the dirty work on the defensive line. Um, and then you have the linebackers that didn't play well either, that kind of, you know, if the linebackers had played better, you would see more tackles losses. You would maybe see Javon Kinlaw doing more last season this season you have improved play from the linebackers you have improved play from the rest of the defensive line and it really led to um javon kinlaw standing out as the guy um and i I think that's um something that we knew he could do um i think he was a little bit unhealthy last season at times uh, had a hip injury um that kind of stuff but really him standing out i think was less the fact that he just made this dramatic transformation from his junior to senior year and more the fact that you have guys like um, Aaron Sterling not just having quietly good years, but having good years. Um, and you have, you, know, you have 28 um, pressures from Aaron Sterling, seven sacks. You have 26 pressures and five sacks from DJ Wanham. And those are really the three guys that had great seasons. Um, J.J. Anagbari came on at the end of the year and had, um, I believe, 10 or so um, pressures over his last few games. Yeah, he had um, over his last three games, 12 pressures. Um, So he really came on, had a much better season towards the end. Um, But I think the presence of those other guys really helped um, Javon Kimball stand out from an eye test perspective. Yeah, just another great example of of the confusing and at times really great symbiosis that is football. Sometimes it's frustrating because you can't figure out why the pieces don't fit exactly like they do. And there are other instances where you have a guy like Javon Kinlaw that attracts a lot of attention and make guys around him, makes guys around him better because of it. And then you have the other guys that are stepping up that are, you know, also allowing Kinlaw to thrive. And I think the other part of this season, at least in terms of his draft stock, in terms of, you know, whether he gets named to, or I guess not whether, what uh, postseason accolades he gets, whether he ends up being an All-American, All-SEC, all those kinds of things. He had more plays that I think just jumped out. So even if his 
if his grade was similar to last year. There were there were more Javon Kinlaw plays this year that ended up on Twitter, like on Baldy's breakdowns or something, where it's like, oh my gosh, watch this guy just totally destroy this 340-pound guard. And then the rest of the country was like, oh, this guy. And it feels like it tailed off a little bit towards the end of the season. I feel like that had as much to do with Carolina's season going in the tank as anything. But um, I, I, I do worry, for as much as I'm encouraged about the guys that you're bringing back in the secondary next year, I do worry for Carolina, you know, if – the impact of losing Kinlaw will be just far greater than his statistics in the same way that we saw the, I guess, absence of Debo Samuel go far beyond the statistics that he brought to the team. Yeah, and I think the position difference um, is going to be a big deal there. Um, Debo Samuel bailed out the offense way too much. I call it the Lamar Jackson effect. I think I've talked about this before, about how people thought that Louisville's offense was good because they had Lamar Jackson. Um, and it turned out that it was a very mediocre to bad offense with just a once-in-a-lifetime player. Um, I think as we've, we're seeing uh, Debo Samuel do the same thing in the NFL, we're starting to see that last year's offense wasn't much better than this year's offense. You just had Debo Samuel. Um, and I think at a wide receiver, he's naturally more inclined to have that game-breaking play um, that you know Javon Kimball might be able to have. Um, but isn't necessarily going to going to have um, on a more consistent level. But, I mean, the rest of the defense, especially the interior defensive line, did play well. They graded out well. Uh, Kobe Smith, like always, graded out well. You lose him, too. But you have um, Rick Sandich. You have uh, Zach Pickens. Um, you got a lot of guys that you've recruited, some, you know, more heavily recruited guys. I'm trying to see some of the – some of these here uh, label some of these guys as ed- edge rushers, so it's kind of hard to see on um, you know, on this spreadsheet. But you have a lot of the guys on the defensive interior that have the potential to be really, really good guys. And especially, I think, Willis Jeff said it a lot last year when he was forced to play um, a lot of guys in the interior of the line. On defense, the closer you are to the ball, the harder it is to play early. Um, you can start day one as a corner, and you see teams do that all the time you don't see a lot of uh, day one starters at defensive tackle just because it is such a hard position to get acclimated to at the SEC level. So I think that means you'll see a lot of freshmen, a lot of sophomores take that next step next year and make plays and you go, where was that last year? I didn't see that. Um, And so because of his position, not that they're going to completely replace him pretty easily, I think it'll be a little bit easier to replace him than a guy like Debo Samuel or a guy like Brian Edwards. Hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. And just in terms of like the impact, and then you also look at kind of what's replacing that for South Carolina. Yes, you're replacing Debo Samuel with Brian Edwards, who's an excellent wide receiver. You know, in some ways, every bit as good a wide receiver as Debo Samuel, but kind of doesn't have the same playmaking impact. Um, And I don't know if you have a guy that exactly can replace that, but you have... I guess guys that are maybe closer. Uh, one one guy that I wanted to ask you about specifically uh, is Zach Pickens, and I I'm glad that I haven't heard more of this, but I have heard a little bit of this where there are some people that are like, well, you know, he was a five star guy, he was supposed to be, you know, the whatever. Why we barely see him play this year? I took that as a good sign as much as anything because the guys ahead of him were playing so well. I mean, and it makes sense. You have guys that have been in the program for a while. You mentioned Kobe Smith; he's a senior. Javon Kinlaw; he's a senior. DJ Wanham; he's a senior. Aaron Sterling's a I guess he's a junior. So you have a lot of guys that are experienced and playing extremely well. So it was nice. It was kind of a luxury that Carolina didn't have to rush Pickens in. They they kind of had the opportunity to to slowly get him acclimated to the defense, not ask him to play 60 snaps a game as a freshman. He was probably, I don't know, I would imagine like around 15 to 20 snaps a game. But uh, did he grade out well over the course of the entire season in a somewhat limited role? 
He graded out a little bit above average. Towards the end of the season, he didn't have uh, – he had a couple games that weren't great, but in all of those games, he played less than 20 snaps. Um, every game that he played at least 20 snaps, he had at least an average grade with a couple pretty good grades uh, sprinkled in here and there. Uh, look at Missouri, he ended up with a 70. Um, look at Charleston Southern, he dominated that game in 37 snaps. Um, and it's harder to grade out really well. I think we've talked about this before when you only play 15 snaps. But on aggregate over the season, he graded out well above average. Um, and it's one of those things that we can go back and look at, say, um, J.J. Anigbare's grade from last year or um, a guy like even Javon Kinlaw two years ago who developed into this just absolute monster on the defensive line. He didn't start as a sophomore as this, you know, incredible player. Now, granted, he was about 50 pounds heavier. That's a little bit, you know, specific to Kinlaw there. But in general, you've got a lot of guys that will develop over time. And it's a reason that you see a lot of defensive tackles in particular being seniors that end up getting drafted um, early in the NFL draft. Yeah, I mean, even guys like Derek Brown, I mean, who's been good for a while, but it was really this year that, I mean, I think coming into the season, people had high expectations for him, but he turned into arguably the best defensive tackle in the country, uh, you know, this year, because as Will Muschamp says, and a lot of people say, and you said it earlier in the podcast, the closer you are to the ball on the line of scrimmage, the harder it is. So um, certainly something that develops over time, but still, you know, very optimistic about the future that Pickens has here at Carolina, and will certainly get a much bigger role to to shine next year and to show every bit of why he was a five-star talent, hopefully, hopefully. Um, I guess that about does it for the defense. Anybody else in particular that you wanted to shout out? Um, I think the secondary played well. I think we've talked a little bit about um, the defensive line. Um, I really am looking for Zach Pickens and uh, J.J. Inigbari and um, Rick Sandich to uh, make a big jump next year. I really do think they'll be pretty good, and I like um, John Scott as a coach. Um, I think that that unit will get better next year. Um, so I will be interested to see, or I, I should say those guys on that unit. You have to replace a lot of guys, a lot of seniors on the defensive line. Um, so I'll be interested to see next year what kind of steps forward um, the defensive line can make. I think there should still be some optimism there. Where it may be a little bit harder to find optimism is the offensive side of the ball, and we're going to talk in just a little bit about sort of the offensive coordinator situation for South Carolina. It's not going to be Brian McClendon. Who is that going to be? That will obviously be a huge part of what South Carolina's offense looks like next year. But just in terms of uh, the guys that are coming back or rather the guys that are not coming back, because we'll get started with the wide receivers. Brian Edwards, I haven't looked at the numbers, but I think it's probably safe to say he was the best wide receiver for South Carolina this year. He had a fantastic senior season. Uh, what was his final season grade after all 12 games this year, or I guess 10 games? He ended up with a 78 um, on the season, which is well above average. That's getting into um, all conference territories, about 80. Um, so, had a couple really strong games um, sprinkled in here and there. And then other than the North Carolina game, which, you know, we talked about, I think before is not his best game. Um, obviously finished above average in every single game this season, um, had his highest career grade um, with a couple really good grades sprinkled in here and there. Going to be missed. Uh, and hopefully not in the same way that this Carolina offense missed um, Debo last year, but it's just been, really fun to watch. Uh, I guess I mentioned it with the linebacking play earlier. I'm just a sucker for anyone that's incredibly consistent. And Brian has shown, if nothing else, that he is one of the most consistent because obviously he has like all the receiving grades except for touchdowns. I think you can still make a very compelling argument that there are at least four guys 
that are maybe better than Brian Edwards, but I think what he showed over the course of his career is he's just the most consistent guy week in, week out, catching the ball, running good routes. Um, this year showing even more explosiveness in terms of once he got the ball in his hands, being able to get upfield, make guys miss, run guys over at times. It's just been it's been really fun to watch the entirety of his career. And I like I said, I just I love how consistent he is. Yeah, absolutely. And and I don't think we need to argue, um, you know, that Brian Edwards might be better than, you know, so-and-so, because I think it's pretty safe to say um, Alshon Jeffrey, to me, it shows my age that I was not, um, not old enough to um, see Storm Sharp. I was not, um, I remember Kenny McKinley. Um, I grew up a Gamecock fan, so I was watching, I remember the brawl when I was four years old, (laughs) um, which kind of dates me a little bit. Oh, you were born in Um, 2000? I didn't know you were that much younger than me. Was it 2000? I thought it was 2000. When were you born? What I was, uh, I was born in 96. So 96. Okay. All right. So yeah, trying to think what year that was. I guess it was 2004. So I was eight. Yeah. Okay. All right. Um, good. But I, rem- I remember watching that. Um, but there will never be another college football player that I can think of. Uh, maybe shouldn't say that. I've never seen a guy as dominant as Alshon Jeffrey was. Um, his 2011 campaign, I think I've talked about it before, was probably the greatest single single season I've ever seen. Um, probably should have won the Heisman that year, um, but they don't give the Heisman to wide receivers. Um, it was just an absolutely ridiculous season. Um, you know, Sidney Rice had some ridiculous, two ridiculous seasons, um, but it, it does show that Brian Edwards has just, throughout his career, been um, the most consistent player Um on the team, no matter what, no matter who's there, he never disappeared. Debo Samuel had a game or two, I guess he wasn't there. Um, other than the North Carolina game, um, which I would say would be less his fault um, than some other factors in that game, um, he was there for every single game, caught a pass in every single game, um, averaged about seven catches a game this season, just really, really good. Um, good grades. And like you said, you know, avoiding 15 tackles um, was really good after the ball or after the catch this year too. So as much as we, we don't need to, and maybe we will like one summer because there's nothing else to talk about debate who the best wide receiver is, where Brian Edwards is. Maybe he's fifth, maybe he's third, maybe he's second. Maybe for some of you, he's the first. I think what there's no debate about is that he has the single greatest catch in the history of South Carolina football in that Tennessee game. Yeah. Um, Alshon had one, I think, against Kentucky that reminds me, maybe not the most iconic catch. Alshon had another one against um, uh, one of those Alabama corners in that game. I think it was um, uh, Drake Kirkpatrick. But, yeah, as, as far as just pure difficulty level, this is the best catch I've ever seen live. Yeah. Before that, I think I would have gone with either Alshon against Alabama, again, because of the, the moment as well, so the context of that catch was important. And then I always think about the Sydney Rice catch against, catch against Arkansas where he went up in double coverage, caught it over both dudes, tucked the ball, and then did ballin because that's when ballin was still a thing. So that's uh, one of my all-time favorites. But I think uh, I think Brian has the crown for me now, and uh, I hope to one day see somebody else wrest that crown from him, but uh, it's going to be going to be tough to beat that. I'm scared to ask this follow-up question because I, I feel like there we, we have tried to tint this with optimism for 2020, who is the second best receiver for South Carolina this year? Um, receiver or receiving grade? Ooh, all right. I like that. Let's go receiving grade. Chuck Smith. Okay. Would also be, okay. I guess would also be receiver. Yeah. Um, after that, it's just, it's, no, it's bad. Mm. Um, you have Trey Adkins, Keyshawn Tony, who played eight snaps this season. Um, Nick Muse, Chad Terrell, Trey Kenyon, who played two snaps this season. 
Um, Tom Markway, it's just it's bad from there. All right, so Shai Smith's going to need to break all of Brian Edwards' records next year for South Carolina to have a passing attack, I guess? Yeah, pretty much. All right. Is what it seems like. I do think um, this is just one of my random opinions on recruiting. I think that receiver is one of the easiest positions to come in and play well as a freshman. Um, and it's also one of those things where recruiting rankings, yes, at the top, if you have a guy like Julio Jones that is just freakishly athletic and also runs really fast and is six foot three or six foot four, whatever is. Um, you know, those are easy to pin as five-star guys, but I also think that there are a lot of three-star guys um, and even two-star guys that can come in and um, just really dominate immediately. Um, I've seen a couple of South Carolina's um, wide receiver recruits this year. I like a couple of them. I'm trying to uh, – his name escapes me. The kid from North Mech up here in Charlotte um, is really, really talented, Daquan Stewart. Um, he could be a guy that could come in and – just get that third receiver position right from the start. Um, I think a healthy Ortre Smith would be really good. Um, he's not been healthy in three years, essentially. Um, but there are definitely options there. Um, I could see Jay Erich, uh coming in and changing full-time to receiver and becoming a really good receiver there. Um, he was a good receiver in high school. And so I think that at receiver, a year-to-year change is very e- a lot easier to go from really bad to really good at receiver in one year than it is to do that, say, at offensive line or defensive line or something like that. And they might be having open trials, so if you play wide receiver in high school, just uh, you know contact Will Muschamp and Brian McClendon, provided he is the wide receiver coach next year, which we can talk about that in just a minute. But, uh, yeah, not, not great this year beyond Brian Edwards. Hopefully that changes next year. It's wide open, as you're pointing out. Uh, the other part of that equation, uh, Carolina's passing attack, is the quarterbacks. Obviously, Ryan Helinski got the bulk of the snaps this year. DeCarrie and Joyner, a few here and there. Jake Bentley in the first game. Jay Yurick, I guess, has a grade as a quarterback, although I don't think he attempted a pass. I feel like somebody else attempted a pass this year, somebody random, but I can't remember. Uh, what does the quarterback room look like, according to Pro Football Focus, in 2019? So Ryan Helinski was remarkably average. Um, which I think based on the year and based on some of the, um, you know, the injuries that he played through and some of the teams he played um, and the situations he was put in, I think is, is encouraging um, to see. And pro football focus doesn't like a lot of the freshman quarterbacks um, in the SEC. Uh, Ryan Linsky actually graded out ahead of guys like Bo Nix um, and Garrett Schrader, um, who, you know, very good quarterbacks. Um, I think uh, I want to say Plumlee was the highest graded freshman quarterback in the SEC. Um, but I also think it's one of those positions where you can kind of step up and in one year make a remarkable turnaround. And we saw those flashes from Ryan Linsky that bode well for next year, I think. Especially when you factor in the health. And I, I know you mentioned that, and I, I talked about this a little bit in, in the monologue well, right before I called you. There are some elements of his game that I, I think you say, well, this is, you know, sort of a freshman thing and you expect him to grow out of that and other things that I, I think were probably related to his injury. I think especially when you look at the deep ball, not that Carolina called a lot of them, but he didn't seem comfortable stepping up into the pocket and delivering those throws, even when they did call them. But there weren't a lot of things in his game that you watched this year and said, mm, that's, you know, that's a problem that needs to be fixed. Um, he was decisive when he needed to be. He went through his progressions. I, I think, impressively 
he was impressively reliable with his progressions as a freshman because I think especially when you get hit as often as Helensky did, it's really easy to kind of lock onto one dude, you know, just be trying to get the ball out. But I think he, like I said, was pretty reliable at doing that. I think some of the long-term projections for Helensky are still very positive despite, I guess, having average numbers this season. Yeah, and I'm glad you mentioned that. To me, a lot of the things that he struggled with are things that you can fix. Mm-hmm. Um, and you, you're not really going to fix them in a couple weeks during the season. Um, most of the time, I think there are things that you kind of address in the offseason and say, okay, how do we get better at this? Um, but you didn't see issues with decision-making. He was one of the best decision-makers statistically in the uh, SEC. Um, at one point, had the longest um, – streak without an interception in the um, in the country, which I may have been broken with that really bad interception against uh, App State. That was a drop. Yep, that was um, it. Made, made really good decisions most of the season um, and showed the ability to hit some of those harder, quote-unquote, NFL throws. Um, I think he just didn't look comfortable from a health point of view at some point. I'm, I'm not turning that into a he shouldn't have been playing. I don't have any problem with that. Um, you could count, you know, pretty easily in about 10 seconds, the amount of quarterbacks this year that played through injuries. I think of Dan Ellington down at uh, Georgia State that had a more severe ACL injury. Um, I think of uh, Connor Shaw, very similar injury when he played against Missouri, but since he won the game, he's quote, he's really tough. And it's, oh, Muschamp shouldn't have played. Um, Holinsky, I think that a lot of perception is shaped by it's a four and eight season, not mm-hmm. – Connor Shaw came back and kept this season alive. Um, and, and I really think that's the only difference between, um, you know, some of the injuries out there. Uh, Deshaun Watson played on a torn, partially torn ACL against South Carolina a few years ago, and it was he helped his team win the game, whereas Ryan Holinsky plays on a, you know, slightly torn ACL, and it's, oh, they weren't protecting the, the quarterback. And so um, I think a lot of the things that we saw um, can be improved and can be improved in an offseason – especially when Ryan Holinsky was not expecting to come in and play, and he's thrust into the, the game, uh, you know, second game of the season. And is it fair to say that with on Joyner, just as you look at the future of the quarterback room there for South Carolina, that the sample size was just too small to really make an accurate assessment about his future going forward? Yeah, I think way too small. Um, he was credited with 106 passing plays, um, but he did not make that many attempts, or did not have that many attempts. He got better as the year went on. Um, I thought, especially against Texas A&M, I thought he was excellent against Texas A&M at the end of the um, end of the game, showing that he can make um, you know make some throws there. I honestly don't think that they expected to have to use him at any point this season, and we're going to try to hope to use him in short spurts. And then they had to use him a little bit more than they wanted to, and they couldn't roll out the offense they wanted to with him. So I, I think if you get an offensive coordinator in here that has a vision for what they want to do with Joiner, um, I could see him being a quarterback at the college level. All right, well, we keep dancing around it, and I keep promising y'all that we are going to get there, and we are going to get there, but just two more position groups that I want to go through, I guess a little bit quickly, at least for the running backs, because most of those guys aren't coming back. Rico Dotto's not coming back. Mondenson's not coming back. Tavian Feaster's not coming back. All those guys are seniors. I'm guessing, uh, let's see, I'm going to actually guess that Tavian Feaster had the best grade of the season just because I feel like Rico had some stinkers down there towards the end of the season. Is that accurate? Yeah, Tavian Feaster was actually just behind Brian Edwards for uh, best offensive player um, as far as grade went. One thing that surprised me, I think I've said this this year, he was bad in the passing game. Um, as a receiver, he got a 54 grade, which is well below average. Um, but he was the best pass blocker on the team at any position. 
um, and had the best running grade of anybody on the team. Uh, he was followed pretty closely behind, very small sample size, only 41 snaps. Uh, Deshaun Fenwick graded out well. Again, I've never seen Deshaun Fenwick play against an actual good team. Um, our sample size there is Chattanooga and I can't what I don't even remember what game it was this year. It was App State, Vanderbilt, one of those games that I've already forgotten. Um, and then other than that, it's, um, you know, Rico Dowdle also graded out well. Those three guys actually are two, three, and four um, as far as overall grade um, on the offense, followed by Kevin Harris at five. Um, so you have a bunch of running backs there um, right at the, you know, at the top of the offensive um, grading. And then you have a bunch of offensive linemen, which all graded out very average. Uh, Donnell Stanley was the best one, had the best pass blocking grade. He's always been a phenomenal pass blocker at center. Um, and everybody else on the offensive line is just right around that average range. I guess not the worst thing in the world, and, and offensive line is one of those positions, I mean, maybe more than any other group on the entire football field, that continuity can really make up for some talent deficits. So, I mean, you look at Donnell Stanley, Carolina's best offensive lineman according to Pro Football Focus this year. He's the only guy that's not coming back. You look at that and say, well, you know, for a unit that was pretty average, that's not great. But when you bring back four guys, I feel better at least about what the continuity can do in terms of improving that group, even more than something like the defensive line where you do really worry about the individual impact of Javon Kinlaw. Now, South Carolina's obviously got a a lot of decisions to make in terms of figuring out who's going to play center because the Hank Manis experiment did not go well or last very long uh, this season. So they're going to need somebody to step up there. Um, and, and play that position but the rest of it it feels it feels like pretty good I mean whether it's uh, moving Dylan Wanham over to left tackle which I guess they experimented with at the Clemson game and then you have a couple of guys and uh, Ja'Kai Moore maybe Jalen Nichols at that right tackle spot and then you have guys that have all played now in Javon Gwynn, Jordan Rhodes and Eric Douglas duking it out for the two guard spots them having experience is good and then one of those guys I guess is going to have to play center but um, does any one of those guys stand out more than the rest of them? Um, Sedarius Hutcherson is one of the most freakishly just strong people I've ever seen. Um, there was rumor, um, and by rumor, I mean he was the one that said it, um, that said he, uh, when he was practicing, I guess for the combine, just kind of seeing what he could do with the, the bench, pre- uh, bench press, would have, if he had been in the combine, I think he repped it 41 times, which might be a record for the combine. Um, so just freakishly strong. He can play multiple positions. I'll be interested to see where they put him next year because he's going to anchor that line wherever he um, wherever he goes. Um, and then I think you've got some pieces that if you can plug them into the right place, they were good at times this season. I think offensive line is really one of those things. You can be good 95% of the snaps and be considered a bad offensive lineman because you gave up two sacks. Um, and so I'll be interested to see where they can plug these guys in to make them most consistently um, talented and, and where they're protecting Ryan Holinsky because that's honestly more important than being able to um, just move people on the offensive line. We, we talked about it some. Um, you need to be able to get one yard when you need a yard. But other than that, if you are a better pass-blocking team than run-blocking team, that's probably where you want to be. Right, yeah, and I can't believe I forgot to mention Sedarius Hutcherson. Obviously, that was big news for Carolina. They got overshadowed by the announcement of Ryan Holinsky's injury and also the announcement of Jake Bentley's transferring probably to Utah, but not coming back to South Carolina. I think it was on that same day or maybe like the afternoon before, but it, it got kind of lost in the shuffle that he is going to be coming back for his last year at South Carolina. So it seems like probably going to play that left guard where he finished the season. I think where he's probably a little bit more comfortable now that Carolina, I think is going to try to move one of them over to left tackle. So then you're basically between the three guys, Rhodes, Douglas, 
Um, I guess maybe if you still want to throw Manos in there and uh, Javon Gwynn for that right guard and then the center position, unless they feel like they can experiment with Hutcherson at center. But this is a now I'm going off on a tangent, a conversation probably um, better for the offseason. That pretty much does it for the offense, unless there was anybody else that you wanted to touch on. It was a very disappointing unit, and I think projecting ahead, you have to hope that in two weeks during the early signing period that Marshawn Lloyd decides to stay committed to South Carolina. It kind of seems like he still will. That will be a huge boon for a, a group that ran the ball well, really well at times this year, uh, not so well towards the end of the year, but, I mean, needs to be able to replace the productivity of Rico and Tavian in the early part of the season. If you have him and Kevin Harris and then Deshaun Fimlick with that third guy, you feel probably reasonably good about replicating some of that success. Uh, we mentioned the continuity coming back on the offensive line. The wide receiving core is going to be an absolute adventure, and then quarterback, you're at least bringing back a veteran in Ryan Helensky. So the question then becomes, what do you do with whomever it is that you bring in to be the new offensive coordinator? Will, who is your dream hire for that position for South Carolina? Uh, dream hire. That's um, that's kind of an unfair question. I, th- I think <laughs> there's. I don't like thinking about dream hires um, just because, you know, some of them would just never happen. Um, I just think of some of the great offensive minds. I think this is, um, you know, kind of a joke, but also at the same time would be really fun just to have Steve Spurrier come in on game days and just call plays. That would just be really fun. Uh, oh, but yeah. I think of a guy like, uh, you know, you got Kalen DeBoer um, over at Indiana. I really, really like him, and I've watched Indiana. I play college fantasy, so I watch these obscure Big Ten and Big 12 games. Um, I liked Indiana this year. I thought their quarterback um, play was really good um, from guys I've never heard of. Um, and I thought they played, you know, fairly decent and at a place where, you know, Indiana is not known for football success. Uh, so I think of a guy like him, um, you know, a dream hire – um, you think of a Joe Brady, he would never come to South Carolina from LSU. He's got it made there. Um, but some of these young offensive minds, I'm always a fan of, um, I know that they want to go with a proven offensive coordinator. I would have no problem going with a guy that's just lighting it up at any level, whether that's the high school level, whether, whether that's the, you know, NIAA, you know, uh, Division Two, Division Three. I don't really care. If you can coach offense, you can coach offense. Um, and so I would like to see a guy that's just going to come in and say, you know what, we're going to be as aggressive as possible. Um, we're going to use a lot of misdirection. We're going to uh, throw the ball a lot. Um, and we're going to spread people out and we're going to run no huddle and, um, you know, have at it, which Brian McClendon wanted to do at times. I just don't think he had the personnel to it. And I don't think he adjusted with the personnel that he had to that. Um, I think if you can get a couple more skill guys, get a couple guys that can um, step up, you can really have an offense that, you know, goes 100 miles per hour the whole time now that you have some depth on defense to withstand the occasional and inevitable three and out that will come with, you know, running quickly. So I'm kind of torn. On the one hand, you know, I obviously appreciate why it's important to bring in a veteran um, someone to his, establish his own identity, I guess, because I, I think part of the conversation, I don't actually know. I will probably never know, but I think it's safe to say that Will Muschamp, even if he's not involved in the offensive meetings, even if he's not in the meeting room or actually calling plays or making decisions, I think there is something about his general philosophy of conservatism that leaks into the offensive philosophy. So it makes sense that you would want to bring in someone that's going to do their own thing, even if it kind of chaps Will's ass a couple of times, you know, it's someone to just really assert his 
his identity on that offense. But I also really like where you're going with that, where you just get someone that's young and creative and is willing to do something a little bit differently. Because I, I think when you are a marginal offensive team, when you don't necessarily have the horses to run you know, a Mike Leach-style offense or even like a really effective Mike Bobo-style pro offense, because Mike Bobo is a name that I've heard floated out there for that position. When when you don't yet have the horses to run that race, you need to be creative. You need to be willing to take some chances. You need to do what Jay Bateman has done with North Carolina's defense, but just do it offensively. Give people some different looks. Do, uh, I, I don't know, does Eli Drinkwitz call plays for App State or do they have a separate offensive coordinator? Um, I think they have an offensive coordinator in name only. Um, okay. He's the one that's calling plays. Yeah, because um, the way that they operate their offense, it's like you want something like that, something that if nothing else is just like it's fun to watch and it's kind of interesting and will throw some wrinkles. Not to say Carolina needs to be a gimmicky offense, but just somebody that's going to inject some creativity, some fun, some life into an offense that has been that, that was lifeless for all of 2019. And even in 2018, while they, had, while they had, you know, bursts where they would be really explosive for games or for quarters or for halves, you know, still – looked really, really bogged down at times. And I think Carolina needs that sort of burst of energy. Someone that I feel like, I heard this name floated. I haven't heard much mention of it since just like the initial mention of it. But Rhett Lashley, a guy that's coaching under Sonny Dykes at SMU, and obviously SMU is lighting up scoreboards all over the place. Coached under Gus Malzahn for a long time, was a Broyles finalist in 2013. He was a Broyles semifinalist this year. Someone that's well-regarded and I think has a nice mix of experience, obviously in the SEC, working for a guy like Gus Malzahn, but also, you know, with what he's done at SMU and, and coaching at some smaller schools in the meantime, has also had the opportunity to just sort of experiment and like, I don't know, kind of have fun with offense, for lack of a better word. And he's a guy that, you know, I'm not going to sit here and, t- and say that, you know, I watched every, you know, Auburn game offensively, their tape from 2013 and 14, or that I've watched every SMU game this year. But, you know, the idea of what someone like that could bring to the table feels like a nice balance for me. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's one more factor in here that I wish wasn't a factor, but it kind of is. One of the things that you buy yourself when you buy when you get an experienced offensive coordinator is just a little bit of time. Mm. Um, I, I say it a lot of the time that Steve Spurrier and Will Muschamp have had very similar starts to their careers at South Carolina, and people were a lot less hard on Steve Spurrier because he is that Hall of Fame coach. He does have that prior experience and that prior success that really shouldn't matter at all, but at least in fans' perspective, you can look at it and say, but he did have success here. Um, and I think if you bring in a, an experienced offensive coordinator, let's say, let's say a guy like Chad Morris, um, and you bring in somebody like that, I think it does buy you a little bit more time because if you bring in a guy um, that is kind of inexperienced or you hire from within, which they're not going to do, that guy almost has to be twice as good as the experienced guy before the fan base says, okay, we kind of like him. Um, and the first sign of trouble, if you have an experienced offensive coordinator, you can say, okay, you know, this, this happens every once in a while to a good team. Really, if you bring in a guy that's unproven, um, even if he's got some great ideas and is a fantastic offensive coordinator, it feels like he's got to average 40 points a game for the fan base to jump on board. Right. Yeah. I guess one more, I guess, unfortunate reality to mention just before we get too carried away with all of our dream hires and things like that, is there are going to be a lot of other schools that are looking for offensive coordinators, schools that are maybe in a little bit better position, loaded with a little more talent, schools with more history. The one that immediately comes to mind is Texas, and there are certainly going to be other job openings that open up in the next couple of weeks, which is, I mean, I think South Carolina made this decision quickly to try to get somebody on board, but if you are someone 
like a Chad Morris. I've heard, you know, Graham Harrell's name floated for the Southern Cal offensive coordinator. He is the Southern Cal offensive coordinator for that Texas uh, offensive coordinator position. Guys like that know that they can probably wait and just kind of play offers off of each other. But I think I would imagine South Carolina wants to go ahead and get this guy quickly before the other uh, big hitters play their bowls and get a chance to try to hire them out from underneath Carolina. Yeah, absolutely. And South Carolina is never going to be, at least at this point, is not going to be able to compete with a Texas. Um, for guys, you're going to be able to find a guy maybe that has some history in South Carolina or um, has a prior relationship or something that you might be able to um, take advantage of. But head-to-head, South Carolina has nothing on Texas as far as offensive coordinator position. No, and that's why, you know, I, I even saw someone say Steve Adazio. That's not going to happen. Chad Morris, that, that seems unlikely, although it seems like there is some mutual interest there. But I, I feel like that next level of guys, you mentioned Kalen DeBoer, obviously. Uh, I mentioned Brett Lashley. Maybe someone like Matt Canada that I think is not even in football right now, but is someone that was that's, you know, generally – pretty well respected um, isn't the biggest name. It's not going to make people in Texas super happy. I don't think, but you know, that, that kind of next level, next class of guy. Um, I don't want to say class of guy. Cause I don't want to make it sound like they suck or they're worse than the other guys, but just in terms of like the notoriety or their prestige, just of the name is probably where Carolina will end up. I, I wish I had any idea of what the timeline is going to be for this. Um, but it's, uh, this is uh, the biggest decision that will have been made in this Carolina football program in quite a while. Yeah, definitely. Um, before we get out of here, it is the end of the football season. We talked about a lot of the individual grades. It was a very disappointing season. Obviously, four and eight, not really any positive way to spend that other than just looking ahead to some of what Carolina has returning, you know, especially in the secondary, some guys on the defensive line, a couple of linebackers. Um, other than that, anything else, final words, and obviously we're going to do plenty of other stuff in the offseason, so I'm making this more dramatic than it needs to be, but any closing words on this 2019 Carolina football season? I will be interested to see if Will Muschamp can keep this class together. Hmm. Um, star ratings are not this, – this year, it's not a great class on paper. I like a lot of the guys they've got coming in. Uh, Luke Doty is probably the best quarterback um, prospect I've ever seen. To be able to keep him in, uh, in the fold would be great to keep Marshawn Lloyd in the fold. Maybe you go out, there's rumors that uh, Jordan Birch is – kind of down to two schools in South Carolina and LSU maybe. And if you can, um, you know, somehow pull in a Jordan Birch or something like that after a four and eight season, it kind of goes back to what Will Muschamp said at his opening press conference of, I guess, the ice to an Eskimo. If he can pull in that kind of class with two five stars, a rivals 100 uh, dual threat quarterback, um, some solid contributors here and there. I love Muhammad Kaba. Um, at linebacker, um, a couple of other guys that you might sneak in at the last second. Um, what can I think that you know that shows that he can recruit anywhere if he can pull in after a four and eight season that type of class. And it really means that next year, if you do have a turnaround year, then that the this South Carolina is on an upward trajectory. December, I don't remember if it's 18th or 19th, but like that week before Christmas is going to be incredibly. Pivotal, obviously, Gamecock Central is going to be the best place to follow all of that. So if you're not a subscriber to Gamecock Central, uh, you need to be, first of all. And secondly, if you're not a subscriber and you want to try it out just for a month for free, no better month to do it with all the coaching hires and the recruiting stuff that's going on. So use the exclusive podcast code GCPOD to get a month of that for free. You can read Wes and Chris. They'll have, I mean, everyone on there is going to be all hands on deck for that, but you can read them, all their insider breakdowns of the offensive coordinator coaching search. You can read Will Helms on there, and I would also encourage you all to follow Will Helms on Twitter at WHelms21, 
And just plugging all sorts of stuff here. If you are someone or someone you know is interested in pursuing academics and athletics at the next level, you need to check out Will's company, PrepRA. You can visit them at prep-ra.com, and it's pretty much comprehensive. Will, I always speak for you, and I should just let you speak. From where I'm sitting, it just looks like comprehensive preparation for all parts of being a student athlete at the next level. Is that fair to say? Yeah, definitely. Um, getting ready, to, got some things in the works right now, working on some uh, YouTube videos for um, the main topics on SAT, ACT, um, camp season is coming up. I'll have a couple of recommendations um, as far as which camps to go to, which camps to avoid um, for high school, especially football players, um, but all sports, um, which companies I like and don't like as far as recruiting help, um, and even things just like um, I've got contacts at colleges that if somebody needs to get recruited, you know, call me. I'll see what I can do. At WHelms21 on Twitter, prep-ra.com is where you can learn more about his company. Will, thank you so much. It's been not a fun football season, but I have really enjoyed doing this with you, and we'll have plenty more. Um, we'll be doing plenty more here during the offseason and also on 107.5 The Game. We're going to have to start having you on my local show um, from 12 to 1 on weekdays since uh, your schedule is going to be a little more free here for at least the next couple weeks. Absolutely. Awesome. All right. Well, thanks so much. Great stuff as always. All right. Good to talk to you. All right, thanks again so much to Will at WHelms21. Really one of my favorite follows on Twitter. It's just great. Uh, I'm kind of excited that football season's over because it's not been a super fun football season to be covering the University of South Carolina, but also because I get to catch up on movies and shows. It's Oscar season, so I got a lot of movies I need to watch. I need to watch The Crown. Um, but I think one of the things I'm going to miss the most is talking to Will about advanced metrics in football because it allows me to embrace my inner nerd, which I don't always get to do. I hope you all have enjoyed listening to Will. And like I said, we're going to do more stuff uh, during the offseason. Don't know exactly what it's going to look like yet, but if you're not, we will be ready to keep you all entertained until next Carolina football season. So if you like what you hear and you want to hear more of it, don't forget to rate, review, subscribe to the podcast, share it with your friends. I will be back tomorrow with another Carolina podcast with Wes and Chris. And other than that, I guess I'll talk to you guys at some point next week. Enjoy the craziness. This is a busy time of year, and it won't be long before we're very sad and wish we had more college football things to talk about. So enjoy it while we still have some storylines. Y'all have a good week. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.